All right, so this is William Gettner, who had decided to drop by to promote, and I'll put the graphic up. The Trouble with Canada Still, which is a fairly extensively revised, if not completely rewritten, update to a book that came out in 1990 that was more revolutionary than evolutionary, uh, I think. And uh, some amazing, amazing arguments, some incredibly surprising statistics about Canada, which we'll get into in a sec. I'm always curious, though, about the genesis of people's ideas. I mean, to call you a contrarian is probably an understatement. At least back in 1990, this was pretty much unheard of, except for people who were very, very old who may have heard about, like remembered the way that Canada was before. Do you think there was anything specific in your, your upbringing or your background that moved you more towards this way of looking at things, which I think is a fairly correct way of looking at things, uh, relative to everybody else? Well, and I think... Um if I look back myself, I'd say it happened slowly. Mm. As I mentioned in the first part of the book, I uh, I voted for Pierre Trudeau when he first ran for uh, power. And it I, takes a brave man to admit that. I, mean, I, that's, I thought, boy, that's you're shocking just, honesty. At the time, I guess I don't know. Richard Nixon was going through the Watergate stuff and all that. Everybody figured they had a thief for a president, and I was at school in the U.S. at the time, <clears throat> going through uh, university there, and. Um, course I was proud of that boy we've got this educated well-spoken fellow who speaks two or more languages rose in his lapel the whole thing and aren't we uh, superior <laughs> and all that it just took me I was completely apolitical I went through uh, for a PhD in literature and philosophy and not in politics and I wasn't interested at all in uh, political life but as things went forward I got more and more interested in uh, ideological theories mm. And uh, believe it or not, that came out of my interest in literary criticism. Because at the time, philosophy was heading towards dry, logical studies. And uh, it just put me to sleep. Mm. And I was more interested in life and experience and you know how things actually work. And that led me towards <clears throat> thinking about ideological systems. In fact, the first book I wrote was called The Critical Wager. Mm. Uh, the subtitle is a mouthful, <laughs> but the subtitle was... Uh, essays and criticism and the architecture of ideology. Nice. Evocative. Evocative. Very now, evocative. Why architecture? Because I began to feel that all human beings go through life with a kind of, uh, well, creating a kind of mental building in their heads. Mm -hmm. And everything they see and they do, they kind of bring into their building and they deal with it right. in there. Uh, by building, I mean the building of ideas. Uh, so then I began to say to myself, what is an ideology, however uh, sophisticated or basic? And the conclusion I came to, and this was kind of my definition in that book, was an ideology is an autonomous system of interdependent ideas. By autonomous, autonomous I mean it can stand alone. Right. Because it's built like a building of interdependent ideas. They all relate or hook together. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like those children's games, you know, like Duplo, Lego, those mm -hmm. kind of games where they put things together. You can build away from it, but you have to be yeah. firm on the base or it's going to yeah. fall down. Right? And you can't use pieces from a different kind of system huh. because they don't work. Mm -hmm. And uh, the key, anyway, for my interest at the time was the question, what holds these buildings together, whether, you know, real buildings or mental buildings, ideological buildings? And the conclusion I came to, it was always a foundation stone, a couple of ideas which were used as foundations for these buildings. People don't often admit their foundational ideas. They assume, or may not be aware of them. Right? May not be aware of yeah. them, or they assume them, or they don't want them attacked, so they don't mm -hmm. kind of show them, you know. But if you can find the foundational ideas, the whole building will crumble. Or they're not proud of them. Like there's yeah. a, a, ter a terrible thing in ethics where people, it's a sort of pragmatism gone wild where people love the effects of mm -hmm. a certain program or ideology, but they don't want to look at the root causes, right? And so statism is one of those, right? Where a yeah. lot of people like the effects, whether it's just a better pension or, or health care for the poor or whatever. Everything free. Everything free, but they don't want to look at the coercion that is initiated right. to get all of this in motion. Right. Uh, so, but sorry, go ahead. Right. No, it's okay. But I mean, if you, so if you look at things like the Marxist ideological system, uh, you find out it's, it's built on so-called dialectical materialism. But once you pull the rug out from under that notion, the whole thing collapses. Mm. They cannot proceed with their arguments and their excuses for coercion and well, and uh, uh, Marxism, as you point out, is very similar to socialism in that it points to externalities as the root cause of human behavior, economic yeah. conditions or, or classes or something like that. Yeah. Whereas the Judeo-Christian 
history, or you could say the Greek or Roman history, is individual responsibility. Yes, yeah. of course, uh, our, our uh, environment has an effect on us, but it does not determine who we are. Right. In fact, you could say that's the key to human moral agency. It's that, what I call, internal freedom. That sense that even though we may be in jail and have all our liberty gone, we're still free mm. as moral agents. We can count to ten a hundred times. We can pace the floor and add it up to a marathon. Um, even more interesting, we can actually betray some of our fellow criminals, if we wish, by saying this or that to the authorities. In other words, we have all kinds of mm. freedom. Well, I think it could be argued that Socrates died one of the freest men in Athens yeah. because he yeah. was free within his own mind yes. and accepted his, his, uh, his punishment, so to speak. Yes. So um, let's get to some of the, the facts. And, and I actually wanted to shore up some of these facts, which I think are... are <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people feel they're overrepresented. I think they're a little underrepresented. Let's start with this. Tax is so high. From the 45 years, uh, I remember you when you talked to the Libertarian Party, I was waiting yeah. for some completely mind-bending number. The number that came out was smaller. I think it could be argued that it's larger. So 1961 to 2007, uh, food goes up 505%, clothing 455, consumer price index 610, shelter 1,063, cash income 1,023, increase in taxation was 1,704. Now, I assume that that's just direct taxation. That's not counting all of the deferred liabilities. No, it's probably a, it's probably a, I think it's a, it's a summary of uh, all the taxes that hit an individual in this country. But not counting deficit, uh, no, the deferred taxes. No, not counting deferred, not counting bonds. unfunded liabilities and so right. on. If you go that far, then you're into, well, um, you know, I, I had a very intelligent fellow last week actually ask me, you know, what's the difference between a deficit and a debt? I said, well, a debt is just accumulative deficits. Yeah. Uh, the government goes un, uh, over budget one year, uh, that's a figure, like 100 million, whatever. If they go under uh, over budget 100 million the next year, then it's added to that and you get a $200 million debt right. and so on. So, so he, he sort of understood that then. And um, if you look at Canada's situation 20 years ago when this book first came out, Canada's federal debt alone was approaching 500 million, uh, billion, mm -hmm. approaching 500 billion. Now, these are the kind of numbers people don't really grasp. Like, what is a billion anyway? Yeah, yeah. You know, and people try to make a graphic by they saying, well, you know, if you pile one Coke can on top of the other, et cetera, it'll go around the, the moon eight times right, and right. that sort of thing, you know. But it, it really is, these are astronomical sums. Um, and Canada actually tried to do a little better. I would say, I don't attribute it to my first edition. But, but <laughs> Entirely. It, but who knows? <laughs> but who knows? I, I think it did have an uh, effect in the sense that it embarrassed our public authorities who finally saw it kind of in one place between two covers for the first time and, right. and being put about all over the nation on media. Gee, what are we doing, you know? And so from 1990 forward, uh, they actually made some progress, mostly liberal prime ministers, uh, Jean Chrétien and uh, Paul Martin, uh, really uh, did a good job managing budgets and um, reducing um, mm -hmm. spending. And without any catastrophes. No. Because everything is always talked about, you know, yeah. if we cut anything, and they always say, we've, we've eliminated the fat, we're just cutting bone now. Yeah. And it's not true. There's yeah. so much fat to get through before yeah. the bone is. Okay, but the, the big picture, however, is that Canada today is soaring over $600 billion now. Yeah. And the even bigger picture, if you go back historically, is that from Confederation in 1867 until the Trudeau, uh, Pearson Trudeau axis, as I call it, which was <laughs> mid-60s, right? I like that, because axis yeah, is the axis. Well, well played. Yeah, nice the modern liberal axis. You know, before yeah. that, when we used the word liberal, we thought of people who were freedom fighters and anti-statists and all that. Yeah. Of course, about in the post-war period, about in the 60s, um, we started seeing these uh, so-called modern liberals. They're not really liberals at all. They're socialists uh, by any other name uh, coming into power. And um, really what happened was uh, there's a chart in the first chapter of the books which shows you see almost a flat line in terms of federal debt from 1867 to 1967, right. 100 years of almost zero debt. In right. fact, there was about 16 billion by the time Trudeau came to power. But right. only 14 years later, when he left power, just try to figure this out, there were almost 200 billion right. in federal debt from one man in 14 years. I, did a, I had a calculation done for this book, which showed, which asked the question, how much um, interest have Canadians forked over right, to, to right. handle the Trudeau, oh. the Trudeau debt since he left power, which was 41 years ago, comes to over a trillion dollars. Over a trillion dollars. In debt, on, that, on that amount alone, right. see? Well, then Mulroney came to power. He did better than Trudeau, but not much better. He was a big spender. And then we had Gretchen and Martin, who pushed it down a bit. 
And I think because of this uh, deficit fr uh, stimulus spending yeah. fright, which everybody's had, Harper is becoming a big spender. Yeah. Which, you know, you wouldn't expect from conservative uh, prime ministers, but... Uh, well, he's following the Bush tradition of saying government is the problem and then yeah. going hog wild. And, and also, to be fair to Stephen whom I, Harper, whom I happen to know, he's got his hands in handcuffs and he's mm -hmm. not entirely free to govern the way he would like to. So when he gets pressure on him of all kinds, from the left in particular, I think his reaction is, well, I'm going to have to do some stimulus spending because right. otherwise I'm out of here. The, uh, the other argument, I think, to make for the, the taxes being higher is inflation and, black, and bracket creep, right? Yes. Where, yes. of course, I mean, I remember, you know, the, the details when I first came to Canada in 1977 as a kid, right? I was uh, very keen on the price of candy. It was an important thing to me. Yeah. It was 10 cents to buy still a candy is, bar. It still is, <laughs> and Right after uh, Halloween, not so much. But it was, it was 10 cents to buy a candy bar in 1977. And yeah. I believe it was within 10 years it had gone up to a dollar. Yes. Uh, there was just staggering amounts of inflation. Yeah. Of course, this was back in the day when you could print money and people didn't quite make that connection between printing money and the subsequent inflation, inflation yeah, right? Yeah. And of course, then inflation drives up the uh, the interest rate, which means they have to pay even more on the national debt. And there yeah. was a time, I think, where 30 to 40 percent of the federal budget was going on just interest oh, yes, for the national well, debt. Listen, in 1993, Canada actually borrowed uh, $38 billion to pay $38 billion in interest. In and one year. that as a private individual, yeah, I mean, that's, no. that's a Ponzi scheme, right? No, no. So now we're getting to, I think, the moral nexus of my complaint about uh, debt in Canada is that um, the $600 billion is bad enough. But if you add up all uh, uh, public debt in Canada, you know, provincial, mm. federal, uh, municipal, uh, crown corporations, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and then you add unfunded liabilities to that, you come to about $2.4 trillion dollars. And if you um, divide that by each man, woman, and child, I mean, babies like yours, very young, it comes to 150... Don't, you're going to make her cry. Yeah. She's, <laughs> yes. she's going to wake up. My future! Ah. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, this is the big question. That comes to $152,000 each. It, I mean, which is... And to me, whether it's yeah. 75 or 100, it's functionally unpayable. I mean, it's functionally, well, it's not going to be paid. There's that, just no that, way. Then we're going to end up, as I say, you know, if a business or a family goes bankrupt, they have to shut the doors. Yeah. If a country uh, goes bankrupt, it's only a figure of speech. They go bankrupt with the doors open, yeah. meaning they basically plunder from future generations. And I think that Canadians ought to come to grips and face the fact that we are living immorally in terms of... Um, our uh, current consumption. We are asking uh, future generations, we're asking unborn citizens who aren't even here yet and therefore cannot defend themselves against our appetites uh, to pay for our current consumption. Right. There's something very, very wrong about that. Oh, completely. Uh, our own, my father, his father, I mean, they always said, if you have to borrow, fine, but you better have a plan to pay it off. Right. You know, not like now where we're saying, ah, you know, we'll let the next generation pay it off. That's not right. It is absolutely uh, completely immoral. I mean, the idea yeah. of no taxation without representation is bad enough, yeah. but the unborn have no say no. in the matter whatsoever. No. And, uh, of course, uh, there should be surpluses, right, in preparation for the baby boomers retiring and the increased costs of health care and so on. But yeah. to, to, to run deficits and massive debts prior to that is yes. a complete recipe for right. disaster. Right. So that's basically the opening feature of this book, where I argue that all the Western democracies are out of control. Mm -hmm. And Canada is one of them. What do you mean out of control? I say, well, we simply cannot stop our political masters from spending in our names. Now, this presents a dilemma for us because if democracy, I put it in quotes because there are all kinds of democracies, ours is one of them, uh, and we can talk later about what kind that is, but at any rate, the theory of modern, all modern democracies is that sovereignty flows upward from the people to the masters whom we are supposed to be able to control. Well, it's true, if you excuse my language, that one of the great glories of modern democracies is that we can throw the bastards out. You know, And I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's a, a, a reality and a privilege which is incredibly significant that we can do that. Mm. However, when all you have to choose between is parties, say in Canada's case, three parties, who are more or less presenting the same kinds of platform, more spending, more spending, it doesn't matter if you throw them out. There's nobody else that you can choose unless you actually drop everything you're doing and run for power yourself. Well, the, the argument runs, of course, is where do you get the money to run for office? You get the money to run for office from special interest groups in return for spending yeah. down the road. And yeah. so, in a sense, the only people you get to choose from are people who are already bought and paid for by some form of special interest group that they're kind of beholden to, much more so than they are the average voter. That's yeah, sort of well, you said, it, you said it better than I did. And the fact of the matter is that this points to a structural 
uh, deficiency at the heart of all modern democracies. And we see it happening in Europe where they're crumbling, yeah. basically. Uh, I don't know where the European Union is going, but I don't think it's going to a very good place. Yeah. You can't just keep bailing out your members. They were foolish uh, to go to a single currency in the first place because it basically muted the differences between these various economies, which are huge. Well, it's like you have, you have 12 bleeding people in the ER, yeah. but one's bleeding a lot more. So yeah. you take the blood from the other people and give yeah. it to the guy. It's like, but that, that's, an, that's a no-win situation. That's yeah. going to run out sooner. Or you later. take the blood from the healthy one and make them bleed. Well, but there are no healthy economies yeah. in yeah. West. There's no, there's no um, government in, in the EU that's running a surplus. Yeah. They're so, all running deficits. So, so then the, the citizens, ought to, we Canadians and all citizens of the modern democracies ought to be standing up and saying, come on, we have to control this. How are we going to do that? I do have some suggestions at the last in the last chapter mm -hmm. of my book. I'll just mention one of them now because Please. we're talking about controlling spending. I think we need what, we need what I call a fiscal guillotine. Uh, that would be some, that would be something like this: any party that stands for election and produces a budget and then produces a deficit two years running must go to election. Mm -hmm. And to me, that would be some kind of control that the people would have over the government. The government would say, obviously, we don't dare to run a deficit. We just don't dare. Right. They might throw us out. Right. And so they don't run a deficit. Right. Uh, at least that would be some kind of power, people power. You know? Just to jump back a little bit, because I, the genesis of these problems, uh, as you say, it was the 60s, mm -hmm. um, where this incredible geyser of gold, in a sense, opened up in Canada. And when you run the kind of staggering deficit that Trudeau's openly and avowedly socialist agenda hit the country with, to a lot of people, and very few people are economically educated to the point, like if you press them on the matter, they'll say, well, yeah, I guess the, the government doesn't have any money to take, but they don't really think about it that way. It's yeah. sort of like daddy with magic money when you're about five years old. Yeah. I thought you had a very interesting argument about the role of a French versus, in a sense, Anglo-Saxon philosophy in the yeah. generation of these <clears throat> sorts of ideas. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Because yeah. that kind of root, you know, in a yeah. sense, you can't really fix the problem until you really know where it came from. Yeah. And I think that distinction was very important in the book. Thank you. And the first chapter kind of focuses on that for, for this reason. Um, first of all, I have to clarify for my, uh, the people who like to attack me in saying that uh, I speak French fluently. I read complicated philosophical uh, texts in French. I enjoy that. And I love French food and culture and all. It's nothing to do with that. Uh, what the term, the, um, the French uh, idea versus, say, the English idea and what it refers to is the propensity of French intellectuals over the years, probably starting with uh, Descartes and this whole the business of the, you know, the hegemony of reason and all this kind of thing. Uh, and then moving onwards to uh, Saint-Simon and other, uh, and, and Kant. And, and Rousseau, and, of and, course, and, yeah. and Rousseau, of course, and, and other French theorists. This was the idea that you could end up with some kind of planned, uh, perfect society. Okay, how far back do we go? Why do human beings think that they can create a planned and perfect society? And why in, do, why in the process of doing so do they start thinking about other human beings, specifically their enemies, as disposable yeah. uh, fodder for that idea? You know, guillotine them, hang them, shoot them, whatever, yeah. to get in this arguing that, in fact, it's worth it in the long run because we'll all be in a... Uh, heaven on earth. You can't make an omelet without and breaking all, all some eggs, kind of right? Stuff. Except yeah. the eggs are always somebody else's yeah. and the omelet never comes. Right. And so the long and short of it is, I argue that when Canada was founded in the 1840s to 18, mid-1860s period, that was when we kind of created what we call responsible government. It was almost a Canadian idea that, you know, this notion that, hey, uh, you're sending governors over here from England and they're responsible to you over there. You're part of them over there, not to us. So we need them to be responsible to our own uh, assemblies here. And so we got responsible government, and then we formalized it in the British North America Act in 1867. The British North America Act was basically a practical document, which was the philosophical underpinning of which was, hey, keep uh, big central government out of the lives of the people in these local parts of the country. You can't have someone, you know, 3,000 miles away telling you what to do when it comes to matters that you can govern yourself locally. And particularly with the communication difficulties and transportation difficulties back then, yeah. I mean, it was completely impossible that well, Ottawa could respond it, to anyone. But that's right. But besides being impossible from a practical point of view, our founders were uh, very strong on the notion that human liberty was the most important thing of all. Most of them had come to the colonies for that reason. I mean, they thought of America as the new Jerusalem when they came to America, you know, it was going to be a land of freedom, free from government oppression, especially with respect to moral beliefs, religion, things like that, which were so important to our own founders as well. 
Uh, so British liberty is the term you could use to describe their entire belief system. And in the first chapter of the book, I quote from a couple of our founders who say there's no people on earth more free than the people in these colonies. So liberty was the founding basis of this country, British liberty. By liberty, they didn't mean the modern libertarian ideal, which is kind of, you know, the individualist sort of me against everybody. Mm-hmm. And when they thought of liberty, they thought of, you know, liberty to believe in their own mm-hmm. God, liberty to run their own political affairs, to unite with their fellows in all sorts of civil associations. So for, to them, liberty meant freedom to bond myself to those whom I choose and those ideas that I choose. And then... And the, sorry, but in, and in that formulation, the government as a concept is not specifically or radically different from the individual insofar as we all have the right of free association of, of property and of self-defense. And those were the principles that the government was supposed to keep. So there was no massive distinction between the government and the individual in terms of their moral rights and capabilities, which changed a lot under Trudeau. Yes. So uh, I think that basically, that was the way Canada was built. And then in 1982, after a lot of years of uh, muted discussion, (laughs) because we can't say that Canadians ever really had a full and fair public discussion on the nature of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but along came Pierre Trudeau. And in his mind, the whole time was putting together this Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which would kind of mandate socialism for Canada. And I'm sorry, because I wanted to, to, to just, that, that to me was fascinating, because I, I've read Trudeau's uh, autobiography, I've read some books about him, I've never read the kind of slavish love affair with socialism that he openly discussed in, yes. in the 60s. Yes. Um, with, there was a quote in there from when he was talking to some, some British students that was yeah. just shocking. Yeah. In the middle of a Cold War, I mean, if an American president had tried talking like that, I mean, he would have been gone, gone, gone. gone. But here, even it though would we have were in the, him. yeah, even in the middle of, of a Cold War, yes. somebody could openly praise Castro and can openly praise communism, not even just socialism, because socialism is just slow motion communism, right? And he was speaking to British students at yeah, the time too, and London, England, yeah. And and uh, so, if you could just run through a few of those quotes, because it's kind of mind blowing to me that well, this wasn't—he wasn't just in a sense hauled up by his gizzards. No, well, they just basically asked him what kind of socialism he. Was was promoting. He said, well, basically Cuban socialism or uh, Chinese socialism, right. you know, from each according to his means. Right. And that's a, a phrase straight, straight, out, of straight Marx, out of Karl Marx. Right. And, right. and he knew it. He was educated, in quotes, at the London School of he Economics. He was indoctrinated at the, <laughs> yeah, at the <laughs> London School right. of Economics. And, uh, and, and this was not picked up really much on the media. They're all, oh, he's got a buttonhole and he's dashing can, and he's topless, Cana- but there's nothing about his ideology. Well, Canadians then and Canadians now, I dare say, didn't know much about his ideology and didn't care much. They don't care much now. But, uh, and, and I'm happy to say this is probably one of the few books, if not the first book, in which uh, many of these statements he made are pulled together in one place. He was the arch social engineer. There's a shocking um, a little uh, sentence or two in that book, in that snapshot on Trudeau, where he basically says, look, someone asked him what it felt like to govern Canadians. He said, look, it's like we're on a ship. And all the Canadians are asleep on their deck chairs or smoking their pipes on their deck chairs. Turn the wheel. And, and, yeah, and, and I know, he said, that, that if I just turn the wheel a little bit, mm. when we start, they'll be getting off at a different island, island than the one they thought they were heading for. Mm. That's a very manipulative uh, thing to say. And condescending, of and course, very, they were all asleep. Very condescending. But true, that's the annoying thing. True. But true, because we were asleep during that time period. Yes, and we and, did wake up. And he never hid from that. Yeah. He basically was a real strong man. He had to admire that. I admire strength in people. And he mm. was very strong, very articulate, very committed, determined, to, committed to do it yeah. the way he wanted. And Canadians never stood up. And I must say, I mean, I'm just one citizen, but I started to see this and get angry about it. And my wife at breakfast one day said, why don't you do something about it instead of, you know, complaining? And all men have had that experience uh, yeah. over yeah. the breakfast table. And I'm right about everything. Why yeah. didn't you say anyone? Oh, I guess I could. Yeah, and I said, well, we can't do anything until we know what the trouble with Canada is. And someone has to write a book about that. And that's why I did the first book. Right. And this is why 20 years later, I've written The Trouble with Canada still to try to explain what's happened over that 20-year period and sort of uh, revisit some of the bones of the argument. Right. So anyway, the long and short of it is, that in, uh, in the French uh, system of thinking about politics, it's what I call a top-down system. Mm. And the British system that we were founded in, and which is still here in many ways and in our, many of our institutions, is what I call the bottom-up system. It's the idea that you know authority f- flows from the bottom, uh, institutional um, uh, practices flow from the bottom, freedom flows from the bottom. It's in the heart of every man and mm-hmm. woman in, in the country. It's right. part of our moral agency. And so the bottom-up notion was what was, I think, embedded in the uh, BNA Act when it was created. 
Trudeau hated it because it went, what it meant was there'd be local differences. Every province would be running its medical system differently, right. its education system a little differently. and of course, Resulting in competition for people if which, things got bad enough. Which is right. great. And, and right. of course, a guy like me says, look, if you don't like the medical system and school system in Newfoundland, so move to Ontario or move right. to BC or wherever. And the provinces under this kind of system, they begin to see themselves as as putting an upward pressure on quality and a downward pressure on cost mm -hmm. to attract precisely to attract people there for a tax base right. so that they can run themselves and run their government and you know not go backwards but uh, Trudeau people like Trudeau didn't like that he referred to it as checkerboard federalism and because he didn't like this having these differences in every area which was precisely what our founders wanted to encourage right. so he brought in his charter in order to equalize uh, all the things that he thought governments ought to be able to provide for their citizens, which are basically everything outside your skin. In <laughs> inside your skin, he said, right. you're a free man. You can have... The government has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. That kind right. of thing. Of course, that itself was uh, not quite correct because he did get into the bedrooms of the nation. He knocked down the abortion law. Right, right. He, he mounted a homosexual rights. Uh, there's no... You can't get deeper into the bedrooms of, of the nation than changing the sexual morality of the nation in the way that he did. So that was a lie. But having said that... He created the reality and the illusion in the minds of Canadian citizens that they could be free as, as birds in all these matters that concern their bodies, you know, abortion rights, homosexual rights, state will pay for all this, legalize it all, daycare, all these kind of things would come up, we'll look after, we'll do it all for you. But when it came to anything that he thought the state could and should provide publicly, like this outside your skin, like, you know, education, mm -hmm. medical care, uh, the National Energy Program, all these kinds of things. I mean, uh, he regulated that through his charter. And uh, I guess the next question would be, how did he seduce provinces into uh, going along, going uh, along with Federalism, it. they never seduce anyone. It's all bribery. I mean, well, that's what I meant by, yeah. Yeah, well, when I said seduce, it, I, <laughs> I was leading to the fact that he did it through fiscal bribery. Sure. He basically said to the provinces, okay, the Constitution forbids me to tell you what to do, but I can... I can fund. I can fund half of your program and seduce you into going along with me. So like, that means the local politicians have more money to hand out to new special yeah. interest groups which yeah. get more votes. And, and the, circle, the yeah. circle keeps going around. So fundamentally... What happened was, with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in particular, which institutionalized these changes, we Canadians saw, some of us saw, a radical uh, change, uh, what I call a regime change in the first chapter of the book, in the nature of how Canada was to be governed. question now is, what are we to say about that? 80% of Canadians say they love the Charter, they think it's a wonderful document, but I can walk down any street in this country, your street, my street, and knock on doors and say... What do you think of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? People say, oh, it's fantastic. Rights and Freedoms, it's, sounds it's, good it's to me. It's who we right. are. Right. Uh, and then I say, have you ever read it? No. Is it taught in schools, chair, line no. by line? Of course not. No, nobody's Was it compared it. to what came before, so people can no. see the differences? Just like the, nobody's thought about it, nobody's read it. So it makes me feel that we are a dumb people when I know that, <laughs> I know that we're not. No. We're not a dumb people. I mean, the Canadians are astute and you know practical, okay, um, and and the tradition of liberty is is still very strongly embedded. I mean, that hasn't yeah. vanished uh, from yeah. from people. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the language is it's like the Patriot Act. How could you be against patriotism? Rights and freedoms. How right. could you be against it? it people yeah. just look at the surface language and say, well, that's what I make my decision on. But right. And why don't they ever ask themselves? Gee, I see this word rights coming up all the time, especially in public discourse in Canada. You know, human rights commissions and things like that. But where are the human responsibilities commissions? Mm. Yeah. And I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk about that. It's a little bit off topic from this book, but it's another book that you've written called "The War Against the Family." Right. And I think that is very very important stuff because uh, the disintegration of the family unit from the 1950s and onwards. And there's some really great and shocking statistics about the degree to which daycare promotes separation anxiety and and yeah. all sorts of problems. Uh, in children that's gone up from 30% over 50% yeah. uh, in just a generation and a bit. Yeah. Uh, the policies that have eroded, and you quote Charles Taylor who writes a lot about this stuff yeah. uh, and uh, has written very powerfully about the degree to which the welfare state and all of the subsidies have eroded the commitment that parents have towards each other and towards yeah. their children. Uh, and that's a huge undertow. Right, so there's a lot of great knowledge that's coming out that people are understanding. I think the moral roots of the system, but this undertow yeah. of of the family disintegration is yeah. a real battle to be fought in the realm of ideas. I wonder if you could talk a little. I know it's not the no. whole topic, but it's a very important topic within this book, and you've got a whole book about it. Yeah, what I'd like to 
tell your listeners that in the first book, I didn't include much about the family. Mm. And uh, some of the criticisms, friendly criticisms <clears throat> that I got were things like, gee, you didn't talk about the family. And I said, well, that's another book. Right, right. So I wrote a book called The War Against the Family, which came out in 1992, like two years later. And I have to tell you, it was a difficult and um, sorrowful experience for me, very hard mm -hmm. to write. Some of those topics were just shocking to me as a researcher and a, and a writer. And so when people now say they want to get that book and read it, I say, you better be sitting down. Yeah, it's, uh, and so I know some of the topics. I haven't read the whole book, but it, I know yeah. some of the topics. So I wonder yeah. if you could talk a little bit about what's happened to the family over the past uh, well, 20, 30 years. Well, in the broad picture, what I began to see uh, here, uh, well, then and, and now, and I do mention it in this book a couple of times, is that modern states um, constitute, uh, for lack of a better term, what I call a political sandwich. We have the state at the top, which has a monopoly on power. As a libertarian philosopher, you know a lot about that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, autonomous individuals at the bottom, just sort of wandering around. We can't call them a society. It's really just a mass of free individuals. Mm -hmm. But then we have civil society in the middle, which is constituted of all the voluntary associations, which those free individuals freely bond themselves to. And under the authority of which they sort of gather, the authority of the churches, the families, the hockey teams that they join. And what used to be called friendly societies, where right. people would get together. The businesses, yeah. So we are, you know, we are very social animals. That's what human beings are. Besides being political animals, we're very social. And so I, uh, I began to see that it is in the interest of states, whether communist states, fascist states, or so-called modern liberal states, it is in their interest to um, remove the competition for loyalty from citizens. Uh, in other words, they really want citizens to see the state itself as the great provider. And so you get this um, drive in modern times. Now, I specifically say modern times, although we've always had it. For example, the Romans had it, mm. and many other states have had it. But what really distinguishes the modern states from all previous states in human history, I think, is the incredible wealth. Mm which has enabled, in turn, an incredible tax harvesting, yeah. which has enabled, in turn, an incredible degree of regulation of the lives of ordinary people. So the state comes along and says, well, here's a Stefan fellow, fellow living over there on that street. And, you know, I see him running home from work to his family, and I see him uh, running out to play hockey in the corner rink with his buddies, and this and this and that, and he's not thinking about us. He's not thinking about government and about the state, and we'd like to get some of that loyalty that he expresses to all these people. So we're going to we're going to sweep in and we're going to take more of his money and then we're going to build a little government daycare center right down the street. Suddenly, Stefan's not going to be hiring a nanny or the girls in the evening to come and daycare his little baby. He's going to take it down the street to the government daycare center, you know? Mm. And uh, we need to build more hockey rinks and uh, fitness centers and things like that because we see he spends a lot of time with his friends there and who's he grateful to? His friends, his buddies, his teams, his coach. But he could be friendly to us. If he just thought that it was all coming from us, so let's take just a little more money and we'll build a fitness center down Or the even better, we'll borrow some money so it seems like he's got magic fitness center for nothing. Yeah, he, and, he, right. he won't even know. Right. He won't even know. His kids will pay, his grandkids will pay, and all this kind of thing. Right. So what I'm trying to describe is the process by which uh, modern states have set about using the taxpayers' money uh, to disassociate them from their normal human associations. Right and swing their loyalty over to the state itself. So in the end, this sandwich looks very different. You have a very powerful state at the top um, and a, a mass, increasing uh, numbers of autonomous individuals at the bottom, all looking for things with which to affiliate. And the middle uh, layer is becoming more weakened all the time, so they turn away from it. They, they, right. do, they do go to the government fitness center and they do go to the government daycare and they right. do, you know, all this kind of thing. So eventually you get a breakdown of civil society. And the argument I often use is that that's too bad because that's our only real defense against the state as individuals. You and I are powerless against the government as individuals. Sure. But if we can band together, say one and a half million families in Canada can band together and scream at the state about how we want it to get the hell out of our lives. and. Right you know, stop competing with us for uh, the family functions that we feel are normal to families, it will back off. Right. But one person can't do anything. Right. So Yeah, there is there is definitely this hollowing out. And then it's... Good a, word for it. There is a, um, a experience that you have if you studied the history of, of what the world used to look like. I think we've all experienced that, uh, if you remember, in, in 1984, there's the scene where Winston Smith goes into the bar and he finds a guy who's really old. And yeah. he starts asking him what was life like before, because all they get is propaganda. 
from their government. And he's asking, well, what was life like before this takeover and so on? And the guy can barely remember, he can't. And trying to reach sort of through this memory hole, this, this blackness into Amazing. the past becomes really hard. I mean, I was at a conference in California recently, I was speaking there, and I saw a great presentation from a guy who was saying that before socialized medicine or Medicare or Medicaid, he was talking about the US experience, there were these friendly societies where about 90 to 95% of the poor had their medical costs covered by a small contribution to a general pool, which then people yeah. would, uh, would draw from uh, as necessary. But of course, once the government comes in, it elbows aside all of these voluntary societies. And then people yeah. say, well, without the government, there'd be a huge void and no one would get health care yeah. or whatever well, In fact, it is. they lose their interest in doing it themselves. Well, that becomes pointless. And they want they yeah. want the status back. Look at the Soviet Union. There's a large percentage still of Russian citizens who who pine for old Stalin. Yeah, yeah. They want it all back because, well, they didn't have to do anything for themselves. And they've, yeah. in a sense, human beings, the one thing that is constant is our capacity to adapt to different social environments. Yeah. And so once you adapt, you become sort of a, you have to have that environment around you. Yeah. I mean, think of clawing back government spending is so challenging. And of course, they're facing this in Ireland at the moment. They face this in Greece. They're going to face it. What a disappointment in Ireland. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I know. I did not expect to see the Irish doing this. Well, not like the Greeks. You know. Oh, but it's you know it's it's the same thing, Bill. Every time uh, you you get freedom, yeah. and freedom generates massive wealth, as you talked about, which then is like a blood vessel going straight into the cancer of the state, feeding, feeding, feeding. We so need the, we need systems to cut the blood off yeah. the flows. Because I remember ten years yeah. uh, when I was in the IT field, ten or twelve years ago, people were talking about uh, Ireland was the economic miracle of Europe, right? right? Because it went from grinding poverty, lowered its corporate tax rates, invited all of these major corporations in, massive job growth. And I remember saying, even at the time, (laughs) hey, you know what they're going to get? There's a huge government net because it's like, oh, all this tax revenue and everybody swarms to this money money guys. You were right. And they already, what a disappointment anyway. I I think, you know, so many brilliant and uh, culturally important people have come out of that tiny island. I mean, think of the great writers. You know, oh, think, yeah. just think of them. I mean, it's just wonderful stuff and uh, bright, astute people. I mean, how could they fall for that? But then one day, I think if they're not already, people are going to say, "How could Canadians you know, when the, have uh, fallen for this?" When the Brinks truck explodes and money is scattered all through the air, yeah. uh, people lose their reason, right? Yeah. And that's what the government huge Brinks truck exploding and the money is just floating yeah. through the air and people just go crazy. I mean, yeah. that's what happens. So it's a strong word, but for people like you and me, and for many of the readers of this book. Uh, Government, we know, needs to have some basic functions, which are pretty minimal. But after that, I mean, government is the enemy. The state is the enemy, and it doesn't always have to behave like an enemy. It actually, when it's being most like an enemy, is often when it's the most friendly. We'll give, we'll give you daycare. Don't right, worry. Right. We want to look after we you. We all care about the poor. Yeah, all that kind of thing. The only people who currently care about the poor are the people looking for a radical revision of the system. The people yeah. who are part of the status quo, because the poor are going to suffer the most when this yeah. system hits the wall. And well, we, act, we actually have a situation where in welfare states like Canada, um, uh, we need the poor. To yeah. justify the yeah. various structures, but that's why you have this put in place. This you talk about this in the book, the sliding scale of poverty. Yeah. That no matter where you are as a country, yeah. there's always the same number of poor or more, and therefore you need greater funding. Well, and they call it, people poor who have a car and a microwave and, yeah. and maybe uh, even you saw that in house. the chapter. Yeah, I mean, well, it leads it leads to a leads to a situation where uh, if you become a more wealthy country tomorrow, it automatically means you have more poor, <laughs> even though they are also wealthier. Right. You know. So. There's, there's two other topics I'd like to touch on, depending on, on how much time you have. Um, the one that was very surprising to me was uh, the, the amount of crime in Canada. Yeah. Uh, that's something because, of course, people who come from the U.S. have seen Bowling <coughs> for Columbine, Michael Moore's film, where he comes up to Canada and all the doors are unlocked and everybody sort of gives yeah. him a hug and a donut. Uh, but the degree of crime within Canada, which, as you point out, is largely driven by Aboriginal men, uh, who are less than 2% well, violent of the population. Violent, violent crime. Yeah, yeah. Less than 2% of the population, and or 26 27%. 28%, 28% of all homicides in Canada are by Aboriginal men. They're 1.9% of the population. And if that doesn't give people the idea that more government isn't a good thing, there's nothing but government all over the Aboriginal community. That's right. right? I mean, nothing but massive funding and, and programs and corruption. And, 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 and It's crazy, right? But... Well, but a little bit about the history of crime in Canada, and although there's been a bit of a diminishment, uh, it still is one of the highest crime, highest reported criminal uh, activity yeah. countries in yeah. the world. Are, that's the UN figure for reported crime, Poli- right. what they call police reported crimes. So if someone comes down the street and steals your doorknob off your house and you call the police, that's a police reported crime. Right. About 90% of all these things are, I wouldn't say petty, it's enough to make people angry enough to call the police, right. and that's how we tally it. And then we send our reports into the UN, and if you look on their website, that's what you're going to see. 
Uh, about 90% of it is anything from, you know, stealing the doorknob down to, uh, you know, burning down your garage, you know, arson and car theft and more and more serious things until you get to the violent crime, which is probably 10 or 12% of all crime. And that's the stuff that people are most concerned about. Uh, crime, and here's the picture, and I have good graphs in the book which show you. Uh, the crime in most uh, Western uh, democratic nations, <clears throat> same with Europe, same with U uh, USA, uh, we really kept rising until about the 1990s. And then it began to fall gradually, even though the point at which it's fallen is still about three or four hundred percent higher than it was in the 1960s. Right. So we got to take that into consideration for your viewers. And also society is far like wealthier now than it was in the 1960s. So even if we consider poverty as a cause of crime, it's yeah. even that much worse, right? Yeah. But when, here's something I think which is a devastating insight. It's not particularly mine, although I did write about it before I saw some backup justification. This is the Freakonomics chapter? Yeah, the Freakonomics chapter. I mean, uh, here it was. A friend of mine pointed me to it. I said, Bill, I, I, hear you, I hear you, he said, but a couple of good economists have already written about this. And that is the notion that modern abortion, which is basically a free-for-all, especially in America and Canada, less so in many of the European countries where, you know, after the first uh, trimester, it's quite limited, right. depending on the country you're in. But in, in Canada, there's there's no law against abortion. Uh, right up to the moment before birth. This you, is a horrifying writing about what happens to babies right before they're born. Oh, it's, it's, it's shocking. shocking. Yeah, you read that. The yeah, partial, partial birth. I, I read it like one eye and one eye. That's right. Oh, that's, okay. that's what I meant when I said it was really harrowing writing that, that book, uh, that's family grim. book. That's very grim. And... Um, so here's a situation where the Americans, uh, in an interesting phrase, which I use in the crime chapter, they call it womb lynching. Hmm. And what they're basically getting at is that we've been getting rid of potential criminals by killing them in the womb. Right. Especially in the case of black Americans. This is a devastating statistical fact of American life that I think 38% of all American abortions are performed on black mothers. Yeah, who are 10% or less of the population. 10, 10 to 12%. Yeah. Well, blacks are 12, say we 13%, right. so women would be 7% females. But fertile right? women who are having kids would be lower. Even lower. Right. And so we have this devastating situation where there's a kind of, um, yeah, a womb lynching taking place. So 20 years later, this was 1973 when Roe versus Wade first came in. It was later in Canada, but Canada was getting pretty loose anyway. I think 88 when we shot the Canadian law down. Uh, but uh, the long and short of it is that you're talking about anywhere from 25 to 40 million people who aren't here right. because we've been killing them off in the womb. Half of those were men who would have been in their crime-creating years right, right. had society not improved itself in order to control some of that and redirect them, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, they would have been here doing that. And so you see crime tumbling from the early 90s on. Right. Right. It's a devastating reality. So if some people say, ah, oh, well, then abortion is good. No, I said, I didn't say that. I said, it's a consequence of abortion. Well, and then we could, uh, we could say, well, let's, let's start killing off uh, uh, Aboriginal babies because they put a male that's babies. Right. I mean, that's no that's right. argument because no. you, it's a pretty wide net to catch yeah. a few criminals, right? Yeah. But there is the reality of what our Western country and democracies have been doing. Now, I don't know if you want to go even farther with this, but I enjoy thinking about it. Um, I say that all the Western democracies, for this reason, have become slave societies. Hmm. What are you talking about, Bill? I no, say, no, I, I, I appreciate I, the argument, so yeah. feel free. My listeners will get it. So Good. I, I say we have all become slave societies. And honestly, uh, when people first hear this wacko notion, I say, well, it's not really. Because what made slavery possible for the Romans, for the Greeks, and for the Germans when they did it in the Second World War, which they did, and for the Americans, which they did throughout centuries of their history, was the declaration of non-personhood of another human being. Mm. So they basically created a special category of law, I call it category law, which said that this person, this slave, is not a, a real human being, not a person. And uh, that's exactly what the Romans and the Greeks did. Now, the reason they had to do that was because if those persons, people were considered persons in the law, they would have had rights against their own confinement, against sure. being a slave. It's the same as kidnapping. Yeah. Right. Uh, all, all kinds of interesting things come out of this, but my argument is that's exactly what we've done in the modern democratic regimes. It goes like this. In order to, in order to sustain and institutionalize our philosophy of individual human freedom, which is basically about the power of the human will, we've had to declare somebody a non-person, and that person is the unborn child in the womb. Mm. We basically say you're not a person, and therefore the mother can exercise her full will upon you. This leads to de devastating realities in our in our lives, uh, I have a doctor friend who said, Bill, there's a wall this thick between my operating room and the next one. In the next operating room, he said, the state is spending a million dollars keeping this four pound premature baby alive, maybe two million. 
in my operating room, not by me, he said, but in my operating theater, at the very same hour, somebody's aborting a woman and throwing a four-pound baby in the garbage. How do you put that together, and what's the difference between that one-inch wall and the two rooms? Well, the difference is the exercise of the human will. That's what it's come down to. The woman has said, I want this child, and this woman has said, I don't. And the way in which, as you point out, yeah. I mean, they're drilling holes in the baby's skull. They're That's when they're bigger. The when, they're, when they're bigger and older, the partial birth abortion is a devastating reality. I don't think it's practiced in Canada uh, now, but if it is practiced, you're not going to hear about it because right. it'll be done quietly by somebody uh, in private contract with a mother or something like that. I doubt that it's happening, but I'm, I can't say that it never has. Right, and of course, as you say, there's no law about it whatsoever. No. I mean, so the general argument here was that we are now slave societies. And what is consistently interesting about all slave societies is they don't see the evil that they are practicing. The Romans didn't see it. Um, in fact, um, Aristotle, for example, he said slavery was normal. Why was it normal? He said because slaves don't protest. <laughs> if they were really free like the rest of us, they would run away or they would kill themselves. Right. Anybody facing slavery must be humiliated, so why wouldn't they just kill themselves? Right. So obviously they don't because it's free, it's part of their condition. These arguments were made, and of course in America in the Civil War, which was fought over that, it was fought over other things too, like states' rights, but slavery was certainly central to it. Americans said it's natural, as black people are inferior, they're not really like us, therefore we have a category law to govern Maybe over time we can humanize them to the point where in the distant future they might, and it was out of the white man's burden and all of that. Oh, it's yeah, very What I'm getting at here is that they didn't see it. Right. See it morally, see it practically or actually, and that's why they, many of them fought it so hard. And I'm saying that in modern society, which is a democratic society, which the philosophy of democratic individual freedom is very powerful, people cite it all the time, we don't see that we have actually created slaves in order to justify our philosophy. Mm. If it weren't so, we have to say, I'm not free, because I've got another human being inside me, and I can't impose my will on that human being. Therefore, I'm not ultimately free. Right, right. Right, and I think it also goes, what we were talking about earlier, that what has grown since the 60s is an opposite morality between the state and the citizen. Whereas before, there was a congruence between what an individual could do and what the government could do. So the individual could act in terms of self-defense, but if he was unable or unwilling to, the government would have an agent act on his behalf in terms of self-defense, or at least retaliation. But now you have the government doing things which are specifically forbidden to the population, right? So I can't go up and down the street with a gun and say, my kid needs an education, give me your money. But the government can do it. Yeah. on my behalf. I can't go up and down the street with a gun and say, uh, I need an operation, give me your money. But yeah. the government can do it on our behalf. So we've created this, in a sense, moral vortex where up is down and black is white. For the state, yeah. it is immoral not to initiate force. But for the citizen, it is immoral to initiate force. And yeah. that dichotomy between private and public morality, I think, is, yeah. uh, is creating an increasing distance between citizen and state. Uh, yeah. and, and a sort of vassalship, a kind of slavery, because that uh, opposite morality, it, it takes away the universality yeah. and everything becomes relativistic and consequentialist or pragmatic. Yeah. In other words, if we allow this agency to initiate force, are we going to get some result that we like in yeah. the short run? And of course, in the short run, you are. Just like a thief is going to go steal a car, in the short run, he has a new car. Yeah. In the long run, he's you know destroyed his own yeah. work, ethic, work ethic, he's made it less uh, important for other people to own cars, if too many. and he's created an ethic that can't be universalized. Yeah. Somebody has to want to own a car in order for him to steal a car, so he's got an opposite morality going on. Yeah. And that kind of fragmentation from a, a central universal moral ethic, I think, has been a tragic consequence of, of yeah. what's gone on since the 60s. Yeah, it has. Um, you used the word moral there quite a few times, and we can comment on that, I suppose. Well, that's Although, my key thing. So, well, I, want to say, I want to say before we do that, some great French writer in the 1920s—I can't remember his name now—but he said there's only three things that matter in politics. He said public and private. You know, huge distinction. Uh, what he called uh, command and obedience, hmm. and insider outsider. Those three things are the realities of all political systems. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's not un, so somewhat not saying, for a French writer to be that concise. He's not but saying, okay, so yeah, that's a very great quote, and um, uh, so go on with that. that no, no, I just uh, wanted to mention that, uh, and we were leading up to something else, which I've lost the thread a bit now, but uh, I always thought if you step back from all politics, and this man who said that wasn't supporting it necessarily, he's just saying that's the way, the way it is. This is the way it is, yeah. Yeah, it's about public, private, uh, command and obedience, and insider-outsider. Uh, that, by the way, leads me to say that... Um, Something which, uh, again, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say shocks people, but they kind of go, whoa, never thought of that. And that is that all uh, 
important uh, social institutions that we belong to are fundamentally illiberal in the sense that they create an insider-outsider division. Mm. There are very simple examples. For example, when you marry uh, someone as lovely as your wife, <laughs> um, you have um, unique access to her being, just like she mm. does to you. Nobody else does. Mm -hmm. so you're an insider in this marriage. No one else can claim those rights. Yes, for exclusivity you, for, for sure. Yeah. That's illiberal in an egalitarian sense. And I'll just yeah, pursue sure. it and That's say, an exclusionary factor in yeah. a marriage by definition, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, but it, it be, begins to appear to me, and I try to outline how this works in the book in a couple of places. What I call social bonding is an essential product of this exclusivity and this illiberal nature of civil society. And this is what makes civil society the enemy of the egalitarian state, because everywhere the state looks, it sees these illiberal organizations. Your marriage is illiberal because it doesn't include gays, for example, it doesn't include, right, other, right. Doesn't include other people. Right. Your very definition of ma marriage, I would assume, I don't know what oh, you yeah, think no, about that. Uh... And uh, when you go play for your soccer team, uh, you you subscribe to the rules of the club, you obey the coach, you pay your fees. It's driving so, to the soccer team, so, I'm going to go on the right yeah, on the road. So, on the some right. other fellow walks along and says, hey, I want everything you're getting from that soccer team, but I don't want to join the soccer team. Right. You say, well, you can't. You're either inside or you're outside my soccer team. Right. Same with your company. You're an employee or not. The company will fight for you, pay you, give you pensions, do whatever, but it's not going to do that for everybody, right. just for you. Right. Now, there's a process which people go through when they enter into these... Um, voluntary associations, as they're formally called. Um, and it's always illiberal. And the last thing that it creates, this process of uh, commitment to these organizations, the last thing that it creates is privileges for the member. Hmm. You become a member in your own marriage. You have privileges no one else has right. in your marriage. And no one else has who doesn't subscribe to the bonds of marriage in society as a whole. Right. Except with a charter in hand and the egalitarian principle, which is that you're discriminating against me <laughs> if you don't give me those things, they are getting them. Right. And, you know, I, I thought it was interesting how you pointed out that discrimination used to be a positive word. Yes. I, I'm a discriminating purchaser, right? I'm a Absolutely. discriminating individual, but it got conflated with racism or, or yeah. other kinds of isms, yes. which I think we can all accept are pretty nasty. Uh, and that's a real shame that, that to have a preference of any kind now almost is called uh, discrimination. Yeah. And technically, they, I suppose it is, but they made, became they, negative. They made a perfectly good and important word dirty, Yeah, which is too bad, because yeah. all parents used to turn to their children and say, well, that was not a very discriminating remark. <laughs> right. What right. they meant was, you haven't got the nuances and the niceties of this distinction, my right. son, that right. kind of thing. It's a proud word, but yeah. now it's been stolen from us, and you, you know, you're made to seem like somebody evil if you even use it. But the same with the word prejudice. Right. You know, Burke used to say that uh, prejudice was just morality made habit. And he called them prejudices. Right. You should be prejudiced in favor of the good and well, against things that are bad and so on. It's another word that got stolen. You see? Right. And that's, that's part of, I think, the great tragedy of the philosophical movements of the sort of second half of the 20th century is that instead of freedom... Uh, to, it became freedom from, right? Instead yeah. of the freedom to act in, a, in such a way that I don't impact on other people's ne negative right, on yeah. rights negatively, it became a freedom from consequences, yeah. right? So that I can uh, I cannot take care of my health and other people will pay. And the last bit I'd like to touch on is, is this issue of healthcare because there's this myth that people are in, in general desperate need of catastrophic <laughs> healthcare. Right, that, that people just drop in with heart attacks and cancers and, and aneurysms or whatever. And so we, we need to give uh, poor people all this stuff. But one of the things that I found very surprising and, and actually good, because I found I'm actually following these habits, <laughs> was, uh, was the idea that, that the majority of health ailments are self-created, are, are the result of bad habits, yeah. and causing the healthy and responsible people to pay uh, for the subsidizes the bad behavior and punishes the good behavior, which yes. is only going to cause healthcare costs to escalate. Yes. So I was wondering if you could dip into that a little, because it's a real sacred cow yeah. throughout most of the Western world, and becoming more so in, in America. Yeah, well, first of all, with respect to healthcare, I would say that uh, it was one of the first things that was co-opted by uh, statists. In the, After education. Yeah. Always education first, well, and then... Yeah, and that's yeah. because I think it was Jefferson who said, ages ago, he said that the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. No question. So uh, people who organize government education realize quicker than anybody that if you want to control the government, you have to control the mindset of the people, and you got to start young. Mm -hmm. Start teaching them that mindset. The old Jesuit argument, give the yeah. man a boy till he's seven and yeah. he's mine for life, right? Yeah. That's right. 
There was a very interesting British movie, by the way, made on that theme called 28 Up. That's right. They yeah. followed these kids. They followed right? these kids from age of seven upwards right. till they were 30-some-odd and finally abandoned it. But I don't think it's going anymore. But, and every seven yeah, years I've been, they made... I've been meaning to watch that. I've had yeah. a number of recommendations. Every seven watch. years they made the movie again. It was quite interesting. Right. Uh, but that was basically the thesis. that You get these characteristics uh, showing at a right. very early age and then, you know, watch where it goes. Well, states, uh, states with um, setting up public education systems in which the teachers uh, styled themselves as change agents... A terrible word. These uh, people really set about, um, well, changing the, the minds of the people at a very young age. Now, if you want to see the institutionalization of this in, in Ontario, for example, you go to OISE, which is the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. It's actually, you know, from my daughter's point of view, who spent a year there to get her teaching certificate, a massive brainwashing or- organization. They, they graduate about 600 teachers a year. Right. And she said, Dad, when I started there, I was slightly left to center. She said, I came out a staunch conservative. I could not... She, she said, I could <laughs> That's not... That's a real fork. You're never yeah. going to say the same, right? No, she yeah. said, I could not believe. I could not believe what they are uh, basically forcing these teachers to learn and to say to their students and the documents they're using and uh, brainwashing plus, plus, plus. She was sitting beside a man from Romania who came to Canada and wanted to get his teacher's certificate. He was about 55 or 60. And he would be there very quiet listening to all this nonsense and... Then he would nudge my daughter, Ruthann. He would say, oh, Ruthann, he said, this is exactly what I escaped in Romania. Oh, no. This is exactly what I escaped in the Romania. Because right. she was protesting and trying to be brave and right, speak right. against me. He said, shut up, he said. Shut up, he said. Take your certificate. Get the paper. Go make your life. He said, you will never change these people. We did exactly the same thing in Romania. And this fellow apparently translated Orwell's book, Animal Farm. Mm-hmm. And for it, he was persecuted. He said, I, he said, I escaped from my country with machine guns at my back. Right. They were firing at me wow. when I went across the border. Wow. And he said, you don't have machine guns yet. He said, you have prison without bars. Prison without bars. Prison without bars in this country, you know. In other words, mental prisons, yeah. uh, uh, orthodoxy prisons. I'm ashamed to say that he's right. When I was uh, 18, 19 years old, my mom used to uh, subscribe to Life magazine. I remember in the Maoist, great whatever he called it, Great Leap Forward Forward Revolution, there was this picture of Tiananmen Square with like a million Chinese students all dressed in the same black, all waving their red books. There was a sea of red books with these ridiculous sayings in it. I have a copy, so I read them. Ridiculous sayings. And I remember shaking my head and saying to my mom, I said, wow, I said, I'm so glad we live in a free country. We're not like that. We don't have indoctrination commissions. We don't have human rights commissions. We don't have people sending you to re-education classes, right. which we started doing in Canada, I would say, 20 years ago. Right, right. I remember the first ones. This professor at University of Toronto was swimming in the pool where there were women swimming, and he was charged with ogling, ogling, right. or whatever they call yeah, it, yeah. spying on the women. Yeah. Under and he the had water. to go to sexual harassment classes. And, and, yeah. and be re-educated. Right. And this is a, but they were doing this in China en masse, and they're still doing it in China en masse, and now we're doing it in Canada. And the culture of the country as well. Um, mm. I thought it was noble, and I can completely understand the crumbling that occurred afterwards when you... Uh, said to the first publisher, uh, the, I think it was the, the person who first published this book, I yeah. don't want the supported by the government, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it's all a lie. I mean, it, yeah. you're not supported by the government, you're supported by the taxpayers. By, your, by, by, thing, by right? your neighbor, your neighbors. That's and right. the, I, that to me was amazing too. And I'm trying to remember the number, the, the, the amount of money that has gone to radical feminist groups within Canada yeah. uh, is in the hundreds of millions of well, dollars. One, 1. 1.5 billion since 1973. And, this and is the, the first degree, place to see it summarized, by the way. Right, and, and the degree to which... So people don't understand that the government pays people to lobby itself and that a large portion of what we call culture is government-funded. And, and that has huge effects. People are very sensitive to the charge of hypocrisy. So if you take government money and then criticize the government in its fundamentals, you are gonna, people aren't going to focus on your arguments. They're going to focus on the, quote, hypocrisy. Yeah. It steers people away in a very subtle way from the kind of moral criticism of the society because if you're taking the money it's really tough to stand up yeah, with yeah. your fist in the air and yeah. criticize it morally who pays, um, pays the piper pay calls the tune. right <laughs> and so people don't understand that, that what they see in the art of what they see on tv what they read about in the newspaper is heavily skewed by this this current of money that's just underflowing everything and well, that I, have to, I, have to tell you, I, I don't know if i mentioned in the book but i went to i was invited because my book the first uh, edition was a big time bestseller and I was, so I was invited to an annual uh, event they held in Toronto for everybody in the publishing world around here. Mm-hmm. 
And so there I was in a room with 400 people. I mean, editors, mm -hmm. uh, illustrators for children's books, uh, publishing houses, I mean, authors, I mean, all kinds of stuff. I think I was, I'm sure, I was the only one in the room whose who's undertaking had not been subsidized by government. Because right. I told them, no way. Yeah. Magazines said, oh, too, they, I, their, their mailings yeah. are all subsidized and they get a huge amount yeah. of, of grants and money yeah. from the government. And I think you said it was finally after many years that real women who are much more traditional in terms yeah. of their, their approach to feminism finally got $21,000 as opposed to $1.5 billion. Yeah, but they only applied to see if they could get it, try to break right. them down. They didn't want the money. Right. And when I was arguing with the head of the so-called National Action Committee on the Status of Women at the time, on TV, she was saying to me, I said, how many members do you have? She said, well, we've got, you know, whatever it was, four million members or something like that, some ridiculous figure. And I said, well, why don't you just ask them for $5 each? Right. Why do you have to take my money to right. pursue your own interest? You know? right. She just was dumbfounded, yeah. didn't know what to say. Well, because she knows that if she would have asked them and she didn't, And she didn't have four million members. What she did was she would go, for example, to the YMCA, which has, say, 200,000 members or whatever yeah, yeah. they have in Canada, and say... If you join your, as an individual, can we say that all your members are members? And then they would say yes. So they would, you know, that's. Oh, the and then they wave four million votes in front of politicians, that and that's of, how they get the money, yeah, right? That's, that's kind of, yeah. It's a great shakedown. You know, yeah. democracy. If you look Dis at the dishonest. Yeah. yeah, if you look at the if you lift the lid and the, the rhetoric around how yeah. a system works, I mean, the amount of uh, uh, shakedowns yeah. and bribery and yeah. manipulation is yeah. gruesome and grisly. I mean, yeah. I'd rather watch sausages getting made in slow motion right. than see yeah. how our laws yeah. get put together, right? Right. Right. And I think the big, the big picture here is that um, you have to ask yourself why do, are, have we found ourselves in a situation where, in fact, the people who are really steering this society um, are really governing from the side. They're members of these, um, these groups, these yeah. political action groups that influence government from the side. It's not a bottom-up situation where the people are demanding radical feminist programs, for example. <clears throat> Canadians have never demanded radical feminist programs. You, you, it's not possible. Canadians have never demanded abortion on demand, for example. Canadians have, have never demanded uh, the end of capital punishment. These were all government things. No, they didn't say, let's, uh, let's start reducing criminal penalties to the point where no. murderers get... Did you say the statistics are skewed as well because the murderers get a plea down to a plea, uh, plea bargain, plea bargain, down to manslaughter, and yeah. then they get out. It doesn't get uh, counted as murder, see? Yeah. Because they bargain. It's a disaster. I mean, what I was getting at was that uh, we do live in this world where um, we are being pushed around by people who have um, utopian ideas for how society ought to be. And uh, they'll do almost anything they can. In particular, they will try to circumvent the normal channels of normal democratic life. And that's what they've been doing. And what has really fallen into their hands is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms because uh, people don't understand that the words in the Charter, which are crucial to the direction of society from the point of view of social activists, they're all nouns or verbs. They're not adjectives or adverbs. In other words, they're not being qualified. You see the word equality, but the Charter doesn't say what equality is. No. The judge has to say that. In other words, he has to supply the adjectives uh, for the word. And because he's not elected and he's there for life, he can bloody well say whatever he wants. Well, so governments are about start... limiting the behavior of others. They don't like their own behavior to be limited. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's why the Constitution is a living document, right? Which means yeah. it's like a zombie feasting on the brains of the people. Yeah. So, but the point I was getting, I guess, was that these social activists or change agents, they're all over Canada. And most of them are subsidized in one way or the other, or they wouldn't be doing any of it because they're not paying it with their own money. Right. Um, they are unhappy with the condition of the democratic state. They don't like the fact that you know there's so much uh, free enterprise around. <laughs> the people are free to make their own decisions uh, using what I call dollar democracy. Right. They don't like that. Uh, so democracy has been most unpleasing to them. So they are circumventing it, mm -hmm. and they're circumventing it in the many ways I describe in my book. You know. Well, listen, I, I don't want to keep you here all afternoon, and you've also got some hideous traffic to get through, but uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I, the book, and I'll put the graphic up again, is called The Trouble with Canada Still. It's a, uh, it's a long read, but long read. it is a great read. Uh, it is a great read. I particularly appreciate the statistical breakdowns, the analysis, the charts, uh, the huge amount of data that has been, I know you haven't done all the work yourself, it's been lying around yeah. waiting for somebody to put it into a coherent yeah. picture. And, and, and that and, is fantastic. And if I could close by saying, just for the benefit of your listeners who are not from Canada, I get letters and email letters all the time from people who say, all you have to do is change the name of the country. And this is, <laughs> and this is describing our country. This is, you know, Britain, yeah. USA, whatever. That's what they're saying. You know? It is the trouble with a, a fragmented 
subjective relativistic democracy that focuses on consequences yeah. and bypasses the natural limits on behavior, which is consequences, right? Yeah. So uh, if you introduce a government program and you immediately tax people for it, they will get that it's not free. Yeah. So what you have to do whenever you introduce any kind of government program, and this is universal to all the Western democracies, yeah. I mean, if the people who wanted to go to war in Iraq got a bill, the day that the war was declared, they might find themselves leaning a little bit more towards yeah. non-invasion. And yeah. so this uh, soft bribery of the present while building the future is a huge problem. And so it's not yet. Yeah, you're exactly right. It is not specific to Canada. There's information in here that applies to every Western democracy, with, yeah. and, which are all facing the same kinds of problems. Yeah. Maybe a little more here, maybe a little more there. But uh, I think it's really, really important for people to read this kind of stuff and to get the facts behind the arguments and to see the degree to which the consequences of reality line up so beautifully with common law morality, right? That we all know that theft and bribery and all these things don't result in good things, and we're seeing that in a grand scale. So it's heartening in a way for ethicists to say, or to see the effects of this kind of immorality, because it really does say that, that uh, morality has consequences that can be predicted ahead of time and that are almost universally negative in the long run. And yeah. so we can go back to sort of a moral analysis yeah. rather than, well, if we you know, pay more money here, we get better effects and we don't notice what's being taken yeah, away Yeah, rather than just a practical one. Yeah. Right, right. And I think that's a great argument that you make in the book. Well, Stephen, thank you so thank much you for having me so on much. your show. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.